Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Luke 4, verses 22 to 32, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Luke. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Luke, chapter 4, verses 22 to 32. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. This is the word of the Lord. Three great lessons stand out on the face of this passage. Each deserves the close attention of all who desire spiritual wisdom. We learn for one thing how apt men are to despise the highest privileges when they are familiar with them. We see it in the conduct of the men of Nazareth when they heard the Lord Jesus preach. They could find no fault in his sermon. They could point no inconsistency in his past life. But because the preacher had dwelt among them for thirty years, and his face and voice and appearance were familiar to them, they would not receive his doctrine. They said to one another, Is not this Joseph's son? Is it possible that one so well known as this man can be the Christ? And they drew from our Lord's lips the solemn saying, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. We shall do well to remember this lesson in the matter of ordinances and the means of grace. We are always in danger of undervaluing them when we have them in abundance. We are apt to think lightly of the privilege of an open Bible, a preached gospel, and the liberty of meeting together for public worship. We grow up in the midst of all these things and are accustomed to having them without trouble. And the consequence is that we often hold them very cheap and underrate the extent of our mercies. Let us take heed to our own spirit in the use of sacred things. Often as we may read the Bible, let us never read it without a deep reverence. Often as we hear the name of Christ, let us never forget that he is the one mediator in whom is life. Even the manna that came down from heaven was at length scorned by Israel as light bread. Numbers 21.5 It is an evil day with our souls when Christ is in the midst of us and yet because of our familiarity with his name is esteemed lightly. We learn for another thing how bitterly human nature dislikes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. 
We see this in the conduct of the men of Nazareth when our Lord reminded those who God was under no obligation to work miracles among them. Were there not many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah? No doubt there were, yet to none of them was the prophet sent. All were passed over in favor of a Gentile widow at Zarephath. Were there not many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha? No doubt there were, yet to none of them was the privilege of healing granted. Naaman, the Syrian, was the only one who was cleansed. Such doctrine as this was intolerable to the men of Nazareth. It wounded their pride and self-conceit. It taught them that God was no man's debtor, and that if they themselves were passed over in the distribution of his mercies, they had no right to find fault. They could not bear it. They were filled with wrath. They thrust our Lord out of their city, and had it not been for an exercise of miraculous power on his part, they would doubtless have put him to a violent death. Of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. To be told that God is great and just and holy and pure, man can bear, but to be told that he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, that he gives no account of his matters, that it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy, These are truths that natural man cannot stand. They often call forth all his enmity against God and fill him with wrath. Nothing, in short, will make him submit to them but the humbling teaching of the Holy Spirit. Let us settle it in our minds that whether we like it or not, the sovereignty of God is a doctrine clearly revealed in the Bible and a fact clearly to be seen in the world. Upon no other principle can we ever explain why some members of a family are converted and others live and die in sin, why some quarters of the earth are enlightened by Christianity and others remain burdened in heathenism. One account only can be given of all this. All is ordered by the sovereign hand of God. Let us pray for humility in respect to this deep teaching. Let us remember that our life is but a vapor and that our best knowledge compared to that of God is unmixed folly. Let us be thankful for such light as we enjoy ourselves, and use it diligently while we have it. Let us not doubt that at the last day the whole world shall be convinced that he who now gives no account of his matters has done all things well. We learn, lastly, from this passage, how diligently we ought to persevere in well-doing, notwithstanding discouragements. We are doubtless meant to draw this lesson from the conduct of our Lord after his rejection at Nazareth. Not moved by the treatment he received, he patiently works on. Thrust out of one place, he passes on to another. Cast forth from Nazareth, he comes to Capernaum, and there teaches on the Sabbath days. Such ought to be the conduct of all the people of Christ. Whatever the work they are called to do, they should patiently continue in it and not give up for lack of success. Whether preachers or teachers or visitors or missionaries, they must labor on and not faint. There is often more stirring in the hearts of consciences of people than those who preach and teach to them are at all aware of. There is preparatory work to be done in many parts of God's vineyard, which is just as necessary as any other work, though not so agreeable to flesh and blood. There must be sowers as well as reapers. There must be some to break up the ground and pick out the stones, as well as some to gather in the harvest. Let each labor on in his own place. The day comes when each shall be rewarded according to his work. 
The very discouragements we meet with enable us to show the world that there are such things as faith and patience. When men see us working on, in spite of treatment like that which Jesus received at Nazareth, it makes them think. It convinces those who, at all events, are persuaded that we have truth on our side. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, do we approach the Bible, the preaching of the Word, the Lord's table, and the gathering of God's people lightly? Do we take seriously that the one to whom God looks is the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at God's word? Second, what does the sovereignty of God do in our hearts as we hear those words? Does it produce in us humility or anger, disbelief or thankfulness? And if so, why? And third, how do we count success in whatever service God has called us into Do we press on faithfully if we don't see worldly success in faith that God is working?